Welcome to the legacy teachings of Bill Anzavino, pastor of Christian Assembly Church since 1979. Though these teachings are decades old, we invite you to get out your Bible, take notes, and get ready to receive the uncompromised teaching of God's Word. For more information about Christian Assembly Church, please visit us online at cafamily.net. Genesis chapter 22. All I'm going to do is reiterate a few points. And then uh, share with you some things that the Lord has laid upon my heart. And then follow his direction and leading for our future teachings. Before we enter into the word, let's have a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your words that are life to us and health unto all of our flesh. We thank you for this opportunity and privilege to enter into your word, to study your word. We thank you for the Spirit's guidance. As the word goes forth in demonstration of the, of the Spirit and of power, you will cause us to have faith not in the wisdom of men, but in the power of the living God and of the resurrected Christ. We thank you, dear Heavenly Father, in Jesus' name for receptive hearts and attentive ears and open minds as we now channel ourselves to receive revelation truth from your word in Jesus' name. Amen. And amen. Praise God. Genesis chapter 22. Just hold your place there, and we're going to look at verse 1 and read some verses through there. But before we do, let me reiterate a few points to bring you up to date on our teaching. First of all, we've been studying the blood covenant. Now, the reason why we've been studying the blood covenant is because we all want to build an unshakable spiritual house. Amen? Well, Jesus said you have to lay it upon a rock, that foundation. And the rock is solid ground. And we find out that the blood covenant is the solid ground upon which we lay the foundation of our spiritual home. If we do not understand the blood covenant, really our understanding of the New Testament is going to be hazy. Our teachings will be inaccurate. We will not have a deep, profound revelation of the truth. We'll have bits and pieces of the truth, but we won't have that deep, profound revelation that we need to have and understand. We'll never really understand the will of God for our individual lives. So we've been studying the fact that the New Testament is a legal document based on legal grounds. We said that it is the last will and testament of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And everybody knows that a will and a testament is a legal document. And for the life of me, I don't know, understand why the Bible has never been studied that way in many circles. It's been studied as a historical book. Containing God's Word. Containing stories of the life of our Lord and Savior, Jesus, and many of the prophets. But it's never been studied accurately as the last will and testament of Jesus. The blood covenant contract or agreement that cannot be broken. And we've never seen it in light of the fact that we are the beneficiaries of the covenant or of the contract or the last will and testament. But in our studies we've discovered that we are beneficiaries. We have received an inheritance. And whatever we have received or have is because of the fact that it was willed to us by the Lord Jesus Christ before he died. And it really doesn't take a whole lot of faith to claim something that has been left you as an inheritance. All it really takes is action. Go get what is rightfully yours. Take hold of it. Lay claim. Lay hold on eternal life because it's already been provided for you. Well, we also said that incorporated into the covenant or the last will and testament, is the sovereignty of God. Here's where a lot of people become confused. They say, well, how can you be so sure? Because God in his sovereignty may not want to do something for you. Like he may not want to heal you. Like he may not want to help you. Or provide for you. Well, we said that Jesus and the Father, it's clearly stated, they sat down together and skillfully, carefully, strategically, they planned out the program of redemption. They drew up the blueprints. And everything was gone over in fine detail before they ever came together to join 
themselves together in a blood covenant relationship. And if God didn't want you to have something or if he didn't want to do something for you, then he would not have put it in the contract or in the covenant. And once you put it in that contract or covenant and you seal it and sign it, it cannot be changed. It cannot be broken. So God's sovereign will is incorporated into the covenant. That means everybody has a legal right to come to Jesus to be born again. Every sinner in the world has a legal right to the inheritance of eternal life. Everyone who is born again, who comes to Jesus and partakes of eternal life, has a legal right to the infilling of the Holy Ghost. He has a legal right to the Father's protection and care. He has a legal right to the use of the name of Jesus that is above every other name. These are his legal rights and privileges. It's not a matter of faith. Do I have enough faith to use the name? Peter, over there in Acts the third chapter, when he and John went to the temple about the hour of prayer being the ninth hour, and they saw a lame man from his mother's womb, carried laid daily at the gate of the temple, called beautiful to ask alms of those that entered into the temple. Who, seeing Peter and John about to enter into the temple, asked an alms, and Peter said, passed his eyes on him with John, said, look on us. And the fellow gave heed unto him, expecting to receive something of them. And what did Peter say? Silver and gold have I none. But such as I have. But what do you have, Peter? Such as I have, give I thee. In the name. So you can't give something that you don't have. I have the legal right to use, Peter was saying, the name of Jesus. Such as I have, give I thee. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. He took him by the right hand, lifted him up, and immediately his feet and ankle bones received strength. He, leaping up, stood and walked with them, entered into the temple, walking and leaping and praising God. And they saw him walking and praising God. And they knew that it was he that sat at the beautiful gate of the temple asking alms. And they were all filled with wonder and amazement. And Peter said, don't look on us as though we've done something by our own strength or power. We didn't do it. He said, but his name, through faith in his name hath made this man strong, whom you see and know. Yea, the faith that's by him has made, given this man this perfect soundness in the presence of every one of you. And so we see Peter had the legal right to use the name of Jesus. And every born-again believer has the legal right to use the name of Jesus in every area of life, no matter what it might be, no matter what the circumstance might be. We have a legal right to use that name. So incorporated into the will of God, the New Testament, is the sovereignty of God. So the Father God just can't turn his back and not answer your prayer and say it was not in my sovereign will. It is not taking away from God's sovereignty. It's locating it. It's establishing it. It's fixing it. Do you see that? Very important that we see that. We also saw in the book Hebrews chapter 6 that it's the immutability of his counsel or the unchangeableness of his will so that we can have a strong consolation or a strong faith life. He has removed all doubt from our minds by an authoritative act or an indisputable fact when he swore by himself and he cannot lie and sealed it by the blood. He says, that's my sovereign will and that settles it. I'm not going to change it. And Psalm 89, 34 through 37 tells us, my covenant will I not break nor alter the word that's gone out of my mouth. If I said it, I'll do it. It's established forever as the moon and it can be dependent upon. So without question, we can see that understanding the blood covenant builds a strong life of faith. It is solid ground upon which we can lay a secure foundation. Well, we went over to Genesis chapter 15 and 17 and we saw that the first covenant was the Abrahamic covenant that was established between God the Father who revealed himself as Al Shaddai to Abraham. We said that the reasons for entering into a covenant was to ensure trust because of love, love's sake and protection. We said there has to be reasons why individuals enter into a covenant relationship. And we said, why would God enter into this kind of a relationship with mankind? Why would he do it? Why would man enter into this relationship with God the Father? Why would he do it? Well, we said two things. Number one, the Father needed an avenue into the earth. He needed a way to enter into the earth. He'd have a legal avenue into the earth. Number two, man needed a legal avenue into heaven. He had no legal right to enter into heaven. So God's need is to get into the earth to redeem man. Man's need is to get into heaven... And so what they do is they exchange lives and offer to one another, to each other, their own lives. And so in Genesis chapter 17, verses 1 and 2, you can see that God comes to Abram at the time and taps him on the shoulder and says, Abram, Abram. Abram says, yeah. 
He says, I am El Shaddai, the God that's more than enough, the God of plenty. I'm introducing myself to you. How does that God tap you on the shoulder and say, I want to introduce myself to you? Oh, glory to God. Just walking down the street one day, you know, just minding your own business all of a sudden. Yeah. Hi, I'm El Shaddai. <laughs> nice to know you. Sure. That's what happened. That's how it happened. What, what, what can I do for you? If you walk before me and be thou perfect, I'll make a covenant between you and me. He fell on his face because of the presence of the Almighty. He fell on his face before God. Right away he began negotiations as any good mediator. He said, give me a child and I might consider it. Gave birth to the Israeli nation, of course. I want to just take a side journey there just for a minute before we look at Genesis chapter 22. Did you notice that when the father makes an effort or attempt to come into the earth, did you notice that he's very polite? He's not rude. Love is not rude. It's not arrogant. I mean, if anybody had a right to be arrogant, if anybody had a right to be prideful, if anybody had a right to just, you know, just come on down and just shake the place, it was God. But he didn't do that. He actually came to a man named Abram and introduced himself and says, I am El Shaddai, the Almighty God. And then he offers to this man a covenant relationship if he would be a co-laborer with him in the earth. But did you notice that when Satan attempted to enter into the earth, he did not introduce himself to Adam and Eve. He did not say, I am Lucifer, the fallen archangel of God. He did not say, I am now Satan, who was removed from the presence of God and cast down under the earth. Adam and Eve, I want to make you a proposition. Would you go into co-laborship with me? Together we could work to overthrow God in the earth. He didn't say that. You see, that's why Jesus says, He that came in the other way, the same as a thief and a robber, he came in illegally. He was illegal about it. He did not introduce himself. He was rude about it. He didn't tell of his plan. He just came and deceived. Whereas the Heavenly Father was quite polite about it, said exactly what he wanted to do, told everything to Abram, and gave him the right to choose, not to be deceived. He was open, he was honest, he was sincere before Abram. And I want you to know that we're not left in the dark when it comes to the will of God. The Father is open, he is honest, polite, and sincere, and he'll meet you just as you are. He's not a thief. He's not a robber. When you work together with him, you're working for the greatest, best employer in all the universe. Most kind, loving, tender-hearted, merciful. But do you see that? See, the intruder didn't have kindness. He had deceit. He had one thought in mind, and that was self. But he did not give the plan to Adam and Eve. He just deceived well, let's go over here to chapter 22. We saw that when they came together in this covenant relationship, and I'm only reiterating, and then we'll pick it up right here, chapter 22. We saw that they carried out the covenant agreement. Chapter 15 talks about how God used the blood of animals to seal the covenant. Chapter 17 talks about how Abram used circumcision to seal the covenant. That was his blood. The blood of God was represented in the animals. You can use that as a substitute when entering into a covenant relationship. We saw there was an exchange of names. Just when someone get, like when someone gets married, there's an exchange of names. To become one, and the lady usually takes on the name of the husband. She may keep her, middle, her maiden name as a middle name, but yet she takes on her husband's name. Which shows oneness. Well, in the book of Hebrews chapter 11, we were told that God was not ashamed to be called the God of. And now notice the name was changed from Abram to Abraham. God's name was represented with the letters Y-H-W-H. But he took an H out of his name and put it in Abram's name and made it Abraham. 
He took the H out of his name and put it into Sarai's name and made it Sarah. Took the I off, put the H there. He took part of his name, incorporated it into the name of Abraham and Sarah. But, likewise, and this is such a beautiful truth, he then became known as not just Yahweh, not just Jehovah, not just Al Shaddai. Did you notice he changed his name to the God of Abraham? That's his name. And he said in Hebrews again, I'm not ashamed to be, the call, to be called the God of Abraham. And so now we see a oneness represented here in the earth. Two, working together as one in the earth. Because they both made this agreement, this covenant. Both lives entering into one another. This is so important. And in the new birth, we see this in the new covenant. God's life entering into us because Jesus entered into our life. He became what we were so we might become what he is. And this is so important. If you don't get anything I'm saying tonight, you better get this. The first Adam was created out of the dust of the earth. We have no argument there. But the new creation, you and me that are born again, we were created out of God. Born out of himself. See, made out of the dust of the earth... The first Adam. But you and I, we're made out of God. Boy, that's a mouthful right there. Do you see that? See, recreated in Him. In holiness, righteousness, and in truth. The new creation is a recreation of the human spirit. And what does He use? His own life. To recreate us. Partakers of His divine nature. That's what the new creation is. Okay. Now let's pick it up right there. And let's follow the Spirit's direction and guidance. God had to know that this man Abraham would be faithful to the covenant. Now he knew he couldn't lie, but he knew that man, Abraham as a man, was capable of failure. And so he had to have Abraham prove his faith just like Adam was supposed to prove his faith and fidelity. His faithfulness. But we see Adam failed the test of proving his faith. But when it comes to Abraham, and we'll pick it up here and let's read this now and see how God asked him to prove his faith. I don't like to use the word tempt here. The word that's translated tempt in this verse over here really should be in verse 1, prove. Because we have the idea in Christian circles that God is tempting you or trying your faith. And God doesn't do that. Soliciting you to do evil. God doesn't do that. But I believe every believer should understand what I'm about to say. And that is this. Each and every one of us, when you come into the body of Christ, God has something for us to do. We're entering into a blood covenant relationship and we have to prove ourselves faithful to him to keep the covenant. We prove ourselves. God's going to ask you to do some things that's going to prove your faith to Him. He's asked me to do some things in my life, which is my proving of my faith. When He said, pack up your belongings and go here and do this, that was a proving of my faith, whether or not I would do it and be obedient to what He had me to do. And if I don't pass the test, if I fail, I'm, I'm turning my back on the will of God. What I hear is the greatest test any earthly father of faith had. The greatest proving of one's faith. And it came to pass after these things that God did prove Abraham. And said unto him, Abram, and he said, Behold, here I am. And he said, Take now thy son, thine only son Isaac, whom thou lovest, and get thee into the land of Moriah, and offer him therefore a burnt offering... Upon one of the mountains which I will tell thee of. And Abraham rose up early in the morning and saddled his ass and took two of his young men with him and Isaac his son and claved the wood for the burnt offering and rose up and went unto the place of which God had told him. Now, what I want you to do, let's stop right there. Find the 11th chapter of the book of Hebrews. The 11th chapter of the book of Hebrews and very close by you'll have the 2nd chapter of the book of James. 
if we'll understand what's about to happen and what's being done, if we'll understand the steps that Abraham's about to take right now, you'll understand how to have strong faith. Strong faith. If you'll understand. If you'll take heed. If you'll listen to what's happening here right now. If you'll grab a hold of these spiritual truths, you'll develop strong faith. Find the 11th chapter. We're going to look at verse 17. And close by is James, the second chapter. Now, in these first three verses of chapter 22, we are told that God wants Abraham to prove his faith. He tells him to take his son up to Mount Moriah and to offer up his son as a sacrifice. We see Abraham making ready. Now, what we, we thank God for the New Testament because we could study this in light of this Old Testament. We could study this in light of the Old. See, the, the New gives us more depth, more revelation, more detail as to what took place. Now, look at the 11th chapter of Hebrews in verse 17. By faith, Abraham, when he was tried or proved, offered up Isaac, and he that had received the promises offered up his only begotten son, of whom it was said that in Isaac shall by seed be called. Accounting. Now, the word accounting here means to take an inventory. To take an inventory. To take inventory. Or to make an evaluation. To take an inventory or to make an evaluation. Very important. Don't lose this. Don't miss this. Abraham, first of all, before he took Isaac up on that mountain, he did not just act on the word of God without, first of all, taking an inventory, making an evaluation. There are too many when they hear about the faith walk, walking by faith, they just get out there and act on foolishness and presumption, and they don't take the necessary steps that are required to keep you away from foolishness, away from presumption, and put you on solid ground. That's faith. Faith does not act on presumption or foolishness. Faith acts on solid ground, which is the word spoken in your heart. Knowing your legal rights, knowing your legal privileges, and knowing them as well as you know your name. So let's, let's look at this carefully. The first thing he did was made an evaluation. Everybody should make an evaluation. No matter what the problem, no matter what the circumstance, no matter what's going on around you, take time to do some accounting work. Take time to make an evaluation. Take time to do inventory. If you'll do the inventory, if you'll make an evaluation, if you'll take into consideration the circumstances and the Word of God and the blood covenant that you have with the Father and what the Word of God says, if you'll take time to meditate, ponder over, mutter, speak to yourself, to your own heart, what the Word of God has to say, then you'll begin to establish your heart so your heart can be ready to produce and release strong faith. First thing he did was took an inventory. Now notice here, verse 19, accounting that God was able. Accounting that God was able. Now, in his decision or the conclusion that he came to was that God was able to raise up Isaac from the dead. Now, how did he come to that conclusion? How did he come to that decision? How did he know that? Well, it, again, we back it up. It says he took inventory. He made an evaluation. And in his meditating, he thought about what God had asked him to do, which was offer up his only son. And he thought about what God had spoken to him previously about his son being an heir of promise. And the promise would be through his seed, which he doesn't have any yet. So he takes these thoughts into consideration, he ponders over them, he thinks about them, and he comes to the decision or the conclusion that God has to raise up Isaac from the dead, which I'll show you in the next part of this. Look at, let's read the rest of it. Even from the dead, from whence also he received him in a figure. Now the word figure in the Greek is really parable. A parable. 
Now, go back with that thought. Go back to Genesis 22. It's a parable. And the word parable in the Greek, it means to lay one thing beside another for comparison. Remember when Jesus taught the parable of the sower? He said, the kingdom of God is likened unto a man sowing seed in a garden. And so if you look at this picture here, if you understand how sowing and reaping works, you will understand how this works, the kingdom of God. So you put them side by side to make a comparison. So here it says that Abraham received his son Isaac raised up from the dead in a parable. He took into consideration what God had said. He took into consideration what the covenant had said. And then he began to do deep meditation and thought. And it says he came to the conclusion that God was able to raise, up him, from, raise him up from the dead, even though he's never seen anyone raised up from the dead. And he came to this conclusion and received Isaac raised up in a parable. In other words, he envisioned it. He saw it. Clearly, he saw within himself that this is what had to happen because of the covenant. You see, he knew that God would lie if Isaac died without any seed. He knew God would violate the covenant if God had died, if Isaac had died without any seed. And in violation of that covenant, he knew God would have to lie and then die. And God can't do that. So he came to the conclusion on solid ground. He didn't just go up there with a knife and go to kill his son. Acting on presumption or foolishness. I want you to know that he was sure. See, faith knows. It doesn't think. It doesn't hope. Faith comes to a decision based on the integrity of God's word, knowing God's absolute will has been revealed, and because it has been revealed, I can act on that word and on that will and obtain the results I need or desire because he has stated them in his word to be truth and backed up what he said by his life. Now, once I know, as Abraham knows, and he knew when he figured this thing out, once I know that I receive whatever it is that I needed from God, whatever it is I hope to have or desire in my life, if it's based on the integrity of God's word, if it's based on the revealed will of God, then I could do the same thing he did. I could meditate, take into consideration, take into an account, make an evaluation, see what God's word says, apply it to the circumstances of my life, envision what God's word says, see it in my mind's eye or the eye of my spirit, and know that this is the will of God, and then I can act. See, without meditation, there's no action. Proper action. Remember what he told Joshua? This book of the law shall not depart out of your mouth, but thou shalt meditate therein day and night, that thou mayest be able to do, to act on. So that's exactly the steps he took. Abraham meditated, first of all, the word, the circumstances, the will of God, and then he acted. See, he's already received him raised up from the dead in a figure or in a parable. And now let's go on and read verse 4. See, it doesn't say that here in, Hebrews, in Genesis 22. It doesn't reveal that to us. You see why we need to understand how to study the Bible? If you're just going to read this, you just say, well, this has happened and wasn't it nice? A beautiful story. Well, it was more than a beautiful story. It's a lesson on faith. And really, it's the greatest act of faith any human father ever made. How many of you dads have ever taken your child up on a, a mountain at the request of God and was ready to put a knife through his heart? After you put some pieces of wood beneath him and ready to light the fire. Not too many. How many would even think of doing something like that? Not too many. At the request of God. But do you see this? He did it after he came to the conclusion. He knew the results before he even acted. Now that's... Let's stop there. That's calling things which be not as though they were. Do you hear that? He saw it. He had it fixed in his heart. 
He wasn't trying to make something come to pass. He knew this had to be the outcome. That God, even though he didn't see anybody raised from the dead, he knew God was able to do that. He knew this had to be the outcome. So in verse 4, he calls things which be not as though they were. Let's look, look at this. Verse 5, really. Then on the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place afar off. Verse 5. And Abraham said, the lad will go yonder and worship and come again to you. Notice those words of faith. Wait a minute. Abraham, you're going up to offer your son and kill him. What do you mean, I and the lad will come back? See, in between these verses, we don't know except by revelation and now in Hebrews chapter 11, what he was thinking. What was in his mind? What would be in your mind if God told you to go and offer up your child upon the Mount of Sacrifice? Boy, you'd have a lot of thoughts to go through your mind. Would you like to commit that murder? Would you like to put that knife in your hand and stab that child to death and burn his body? Dear God, no, I wouldn't want to think of it. But this shows to you and me to what extent a person can go, an individual, could go in carrying out faith, acting on the word and will of God, if he knows the covenant. If you really know it. If you don't know it, you're playing with fire. See, faith, once again, is not foolishness. He's not saying that as a confession to bring faith. No, no way. See, some people think just because I say I'm healed, I'm going to be healed. That's not the way you do it. That's not what confession is all about. That's an improper use of confession. And sometimes we get so light in these areas, we get, we get carried away in these areas. Well, you shouldn't have said that, and you shouldn't have said this, and you shouldn't have said that, and you shouldn't have said this. There is a truth to the subject of confession, but it has been misused and abused. Just because you say something one time doesn't mean it's going to happen. But you have to understand the proper teaching of confession, like right here. He didn't just say that as an act of confession to bring faith to himself. He's already evaluated the situation. He's already, you know, made an inventory of the situation, of the circumstances. And he's come to the decision that God must raise Isaac from the dead or jeopardize his own life by violating his own covenant. And so upon that solid ground, upon the basis of that integrity of the word, upon that determination, he says to his people... Wait here, we'll go up, we'll worship, and we'll come back. That is faith in action. It's not presumption. It's not foolishness. It is the known outcome. Do you see that? Okay, let's read on. Verse 6. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it upon Isaac his son and took the fire in his hand and a knife. And when they both went together, them together... And Isaac spake unto Abraham his father, and he said, My father, and he said, Here am I, my son. And he said, Behold the fire and the wood, but where is a lamb, the lamb, for a burnt offering? And Abraham said, My son, God will provide himself a lamb for a burnt offering. So they went both of them together. Now that's prophetic. It's a beautiful scripture. Prophetic scripture. And what he was saying, Abraham was actually saying, was that God will provide himself. And he did in the person of Jesus Christ as a sacrifice, as a lamb slain. And this was a type of an earthly father offering up his only begotten son. See, a type of the heavenly father would offer up his only begotten son. And what he was saying was this, if a man could do that for me, I could do that for man. If a man can offer his only begotten for me, because he loves me, then I, as the Heavenly Father, can offer my only Son for man because I love him. Beautiful teaching right here. Meditate it. Study it. I don't have time to get into it all. Verse 8. Verse 9, rather. And they came to the place which God had told him of. And Abraham built an altar there and laid the wood in order. And bound Isaac his son and laid him on the altar upon the wood. And Abraham stretched forth his hand and took the knife to slay his son. And the angel of the Lord called unto him out of heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, Here am I. And he said, Lay not thine hand upon the lad, neither do thou anything unto him. For now I know. Key words. God speaking through his angel. He says, Now I know that thou fearest God, seeing thou hast not withheld thy son, thine only son, from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold... Behind him a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went 
and took the ram and offered him up for a burnt offering instead of his son. And Abraham called the name of that place Jehovah-Jireh, as it is said to this day, in the mount of the Lord it shall be seen. Now notice verse 15 and 16. And the angel of the Lord called unto Abraham out of heaven a second time and said, By myself have I sworn, saith the Lord, for because thou hast done this thing and hast not withheld thy son, thine only son, that in blessing I will bless thee, and in multiplying I will multiply thy seed as the stars of the heaven, and as the sand which is upon the seashore, and thy seed shall possess the gate of his enemies, and in thy seed shall all the nations of the earth be blessed, because thou hast obeyed my voice. So Abraham returned unto his young men, Notice this, with his son Isaac, and they rose up, went together to Beersheba, and Abraham dwelt at Beersheba. Now it's important, we understand, and as I said, meditate this for yourself. God had, and when I say had, I mean in the strongest sense, there isn't any way he could escape doing something about Isaac's death. He was locked in, fixed, established in the covenant. His sovereign will was already established. He had to. I mean, he was in danger of violating the covenant, meaning he was in danger of losing his own life. That's how important this is, that we understand the strength of a covenant. All that Abraham did was based on the strength of this blood covenant. Faith is nothing more than acting on the legal word, the legal agreement, the legal covenant, the legal contract. Acting on our legalities, and when you act on legalities, then they by faith become realities. Or they become vital. And that's exactly what he did. Knowing that God had to. See, if you don't know God has to do it for you, then you're left out in the dark. You have no basis for your faith. You're in wonderment. You don't know whether he will or whether he won't. Now, James said it this way. And let's, let's look at that scripture in James where I told you to find chapter 2. Abraham's actions were based on solid ground. They were not based on presumption or foolishness. They were based on solid ground. James chapter 2, verse 21. Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he had offered Isaac his son upon the altar? Now the word works there is corresponding action. By his actions. In other words, what he did. I want you to notice that what he did did not proceed. What he meditated. What he thought. First, he thought, meditated the circumstances, the situation he was in. He meditated what the covenant said, what was established, what was legally his. Then, based on that determination, he saw his son Isaac raise up from the dead. Then he acted. See, too often times people want to act before they meditate. They skip over meditate, meditation. They don't realize the value of meditation. And so, instead of spending maybe the first day, if you have a desperate need in your family, maybe your loved one is sick, maybe even dying. Maybe it's in your own family. Maybe it's just a disease. Maybe it's a financial... Whatever the case might be, whatever your need is, it's, it's important and it's serious. Instead of taking the Word, meditating the covenant, seeing what it says... Then, getting inside your heart, envisioning it, seeing it already in your mind's eye, in that realm of the Spirit, you see it established, you see it done, you see what God has to do because of your actions. And because of the legal ground you stand on. If you don't do that first, then your actions become presumptuous. You're, just act, you're not acting on solid ground. You see, you're acting on foolishness. Really, you're acting on a sandy foundation. And it's going to crumble. It's going to fall. It will not withstand the test that's going to come by Satan and the adversary. Remember when Abraham was ready to cut that covenant, how the fowls of the air came down. But we see that he had to shoot them away. In other words, anytime you start to stand on your legal ground, you're going to have an attack of the enemy. You're going to try to get you out of faith. But if you know your legal rights, then you'll stand against that attack and that onslaught and your house will not shake. It'll stand. 
So then he goes on to say in verse 22, Seest thou how faith wrought with his corresponding actions, and by his corresponding actions, his faith was made perfect, or completed, brought to perfection. So it was what he did. Meditation then builds a capacity for faith, but it's the action, the acting on the Word that builds faith. I'll say that again. Meditating the Word builds a capacity for faith. Then your actions, acting on the Word or doing the Word, builds faith into your heart. And we see that because of his actions, his faith was made perfect or brought to perfection. Well, in this first part of our teaching, we see that faith is born out of one's knowing his legal covenant, his legal agreement, understanding what is legally his because of the blood covenant, knowing what his rights are, knowing what his privileges are, and the faith that could be built into one's heart is, it's, it really is unlimited. I don't know how you can go beyond that, but it put faith inside this Abraham's heart so that he can offer up his own son. I mean, he could actually just about, and was ready to, and would have killed his own son, knowing God had to raise him from the dead. I cannot emphasize the importance of understanding that. If this could cause a man to act that way, Boy, couldn't it cause you and me to act on smaller things of importance? Do you have enough faith for God to heal that part of your body or to provide that financial need? Or do you have enough faith to believe that God will be the strength of your life and your wisdom when you go to witness to somebody about the saving power and grace of the Lord Jesus Christ? See, once again, this faith is based on legal grounds. Well, that's not the only ingredient. And I've been led in my spirit to share this with you. Studying the blood covenant will build faith. And I, I believe, how many of you have had faith built in your heart just by hearing this, some of this teaching? I mean even greater faith, stronger faith. But I'm not led to just, if, if you want to get the rest of the tapes, at this time I'm not really led to get into every fine detail. Because I did that in, in my last year's tapes, 1983 tapes, and I believe if you want to get a better understanding and a thorough, complete understanding, you can follow that. Remember when I started this series, I was talking about you laying your foundation upon solid ground. And remember we said that the individual believer's life was, was likened unto not only a house, but also unto a plant or a tree. Remember that? When we first started this teaching? Because Jesus also said... By his spirit, of course, to the Apostle Paul, that every believer is to be rooted and grounded in love. Remember that? All right, you note this then. The first ingredient we need to build our house or lay our foundation on solid ground is faith in our blood covenant. Faith in the blood covenant, the legal contract. That makes the ground solid. Solid. But there's also another ingredient needed in that solid ground that's going to make that ground perfect ground. See, I want the ground to be perfect. And that ingredient in Ephesians chapter 3 verse 17 is love. Love. See, not only am I to be rooted and grounded, and not only is our house to be laid on a solid foundation, solid ground, so that it could stand against the wiles of the devil, the storms of life, Jesus said. But also, we're supposed to be rooted and grounded in love so that we can... Now, what does love do? What, is, what does the root system do to a plant? It provides nourishment, moisture. Not only that, anchorage, food storage, circulation, aeration to the plant. See, we're also likened unto a plant. So in other words, I need to have faith, which is the solid ground, in my blood covenant, so I could be strong in faith to stand against the wiles of the devil and the storms of life. But I also need this other thing called love. Look at Ephesians 3.17. Love is the other force or the other ingredient 
Now, this is not the foundation. I'm talking about the solid ground upon which you're going to lay your foundation. This is the solid ground. Ephesians chapter 3 and verse 17. Now it says that Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith, that you being rooted and grounded in what? Now that word is agape. It's divine love. Now I want you to see this so clearly. Not only do we need to understand our legal rights to the blood covenant so that we could have a strong faith life, we need to understand that love is also the other ingredient in that ground. You need a solid ground, but also you need to have love inside that ground, and the ground is our heart, so that we can have nourishment, moisture, anchorage, circulation. See, so that the blood of Jesus could be effective in our lives, so that the blood covenant, all that he did with his precious blood, can circulate through our spiritual lives. So that's why he said the believer is also to be rooted and grounded in love. Now, if I don't understand love, if I don't practice love, if I don't know what divine love is all about, then once again, I'm just like that fellow building my house on a weak foundation, on sand. No difference. See, now we'll understand what Galatians means a little bit better. Galatians chapter 5 and verse 6. It says, In Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision availeth anything but faith. And where does faith come from? Understanding your legal rights and the blood covenant, the contract, which worketh by what? Which worketh or is energized by what? By divine agape love. By divine love. See, that's the other ingredient in the solid ground. That's the other ingredient. Now, what's more important than those two forces or ingredients? Well, really, he says in Christ Jesus, this is what's going to avail. Faith working by love. Now, under the first covenant, the Abrahamic covenant, didn't they have a law to that covenant? Was it not called the Mosaic law added to the covenant? And the Mosaic law was comprised of a social law, a moral law, and a dietary law. Now that was the law of the covenant. But the new covenant has another law. It's called the royal law. It's the royal law of love. It is the law or the commandment of the new creation. It is the ingredient, the other ingredient, inside the soil of our hearts upon which we feed from the life and essence of God. Now, if we understand our legal rights and know what they are and understand how to use them, that's great. But if we have not divine love operative, developed, if we're not practicing divine love, then you see, our faith will not work. So that's why love is the other ingredient that should be developed and practiced in the heart of every individual believer until that love just takes a hold of their life and saturates their lives and they become so developed in that love that they're anchored in it. They're saturated with it. They're fed by it. They walk in it. Their words are saturated with it. Their whole conduct, their life, is saturated with love. Now, you see, you know your legal rights. But now this causes the word of Christ to dwell in you. See, the word comes by knowing your legal rights. To dwell in you how? Richly. Well, what's rich soil? Love soil. So you see, the soil of love is the rich soil upon which we put that word. And that word goes in the rich soil, which is love. And then your tree begins to grow. And then your skyscraper begins to be developed and to grow. So not only must we know the blood covenant, but we must understand how to operate in love. And if we don't understand that, although it's been shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Ghost, if we don't know how to do it, if we don't know how to walk in it, if we don't practice it, everything that is legally ours will not become vital. 
Don't you remember what Abraham was told? Walk before me and be thou perfect, sincere, upright, that I may bless you. And he proved his faith. Now, we have to do the same thing. Now, we have a few minutes. I want you to turn with me to Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5. And in the fifth chapter of Romans, and verse 5, we are told that the love of God is shed abroad in our what? Now, remember Jesus said that the individuals who received the word in the shallow soil had no depth, had no root in themselves. And because they had no root, what happened to the plant? It dried up. I'm going to stop right there because a lot of people's lives, spiritual lives, are drying up. Beginning to dry up. You say, how is that? Well, when the sun rises and there's no depth of earth and the root system, see, just can't get, get any more nourishment. It becomes dry. There's no rain. There's no water. Blocks off circulation and food. And before you know it, the flower or the plant begins to dry up. Well, the temptations of life, well, it seems like my Christian life gets a little bit boring. But it seems like I've been going to church three times a week for the last five years. And oh my goodness, do I have to go another service? And when it seems like, do I have to witness that person? Do I have to talk to that one about Jesus? And should I be doing this? Well, when we, when we become critical, when we get to a place that we're dissatisfied, when we get to a place that, is there any more room for growth in me? When we get to a place that I don't even know why I do it anymore. What's happening to that person's life? You can know all the legalities. You can know your blood covenant. You can know your legal rights and privileges. But beloved, if we ever lose insight into love, we've lost insight into God. Because God is love. And when you stop looking at that lost and dying world and seeing people going to hell, knowing that they're going to hell, I mean, you know, we just, we walk around and we go to the stores and go to the malls and we see people walking up and down, billions of people all over the world. Everywhere you look, there's all kind of people. But yet we're so timid and so, so shy, we stand back and we don't tell them about Jesus. And sometimes I don't know whether or not you meditate or think about it, but I'll tell you what, if you ever caught a vision of hell, I remember one writer saying just like this. The greatest evangelists in the world would be those that have ever gone down into hell and saw people going there and burning in the torment. And I guarantee you when they come up out of that, if God would permit them to come up out of that grave, out of that hell, out of that death, and come back to the earth in a body, they'd be the greatest evangelists the world ever saw. Why? Because they saw people going to hell. You see, we're so caught up in the natural world sometimes that we lose insight. We forget, my brother, when you go to a funeral, that person either went to heaven or hell. And if that person went to hell, that's an eternal place of damnation. Hell, actually, you know what hell is? Hell is the, is the local jailhouse. That's what it is. Where a person just waits under indictment for the Supreme Court to enter into session up there on the day of judgment. And if they were guilty enough to be found in hell, in jail, in prison, under indictment, then you can be sure, just as sure as that moon's going to rise when it does and the sun's going to rise when it does and whatever. You can be so sure that when the Supreme Court goes into session, that person is going to enter into the lake of fire, which is the federal prison of the universe. There's no go anyone going from hell before the Supreme Court and saying not guilty. No way. It's an eternal place of damnation in the second death, lake of fire, which was prepared for the devil and his angels. If we find that our spiritual life is drying up and we don't pray as much as we used to, and if we don't study our Bible as much as we used to, and if we don't intercede for people as much as we used to, and if we don't witness the people as much as we used to, 
and we get caught up in our own affairs, then we've lost the sight of love. We've lost reality of the eternal spirit world. You thought they just died. But they died and went to hell. You thought, what could I say that would change it? My brothers and my sisters, love goes every inch of the way. Love sees the world in its lost, dying state. And it says, can I help you? I went into a store. You know, little things get people's attention. And I don't say this to boast. We had a very small thing. We had a glass of orange juice. Very small cost. But I left a dollar tip for the waitress. Walked out. Came back. Jason had to go to the restroom, of course. And uh, she said, Sir, did you realize you left a dollar on the counter? I said, Yes. Well, did you forget it? I said, No. I said, That was for you. There was only a couple of us. Well, I was the only one there with Jason. And uh, are you sure? I mean, it's like all you had was a glass of orange. I mean, it's... I said, yes. I said, I left that for you. I said, you need to be paid, don't you? Yeah. Christians should have a good example. And when, and when your service is not maybe as pleasing as you'd like it to be, you know what you do, beloved? Leave a bigger tip. Because the devil will tell you, don't leave anything. That's being stingy. She's probably so busy anyhow. You know. She's waiting on all kind of people. How in the world is she going to get everybody at one time and please everybody like, you know, she'd like to if she had the time, but there's more than just you there. You see what I'm saying? So leave it. But the thing was, it spoke to her heart. She said, you sure? I said, yes. I said, that's for you. I said, by the way, can I ask you a personal question? Yeah. You born again? Boy, it gets awful quiet when you ask someone that question. Did you ever notice that? Did you ever notice that? You see, if you keep your sights on love, you will see someone in their lost and dying condition, no matter where you go, no matter what you're doing. You'll always be aware of the fact that that's somebody that I may be able to reach for Jesus. But if you see that you're going through the activities of life and, and you're not even concerned... And I'm not saying you can do that everywhere you go because you can't. It's just not possible. But I'm just talking about when the opportunity arises, do we take it? See? Well, if your sights are set on love, then you'll take it. And you'll do it. But I'll tell you what, it was a sad, it was, it was a sad situation in one sense and in another sense it wasn't. She didn't know what born again meant. She said, I'm raised in the church. I said, well, then let me ask you the question a little bit differently. And, you know, sometimes you can get a whole lot further with people if you just use a little bit of wisdom. And I said to her, I said, can I ask you the same question in a little bit different way? She said, yes. I said, have you asked Jesus Christ to come into your heart to be your personal Lord and Savior? And you've made him the Lord over your life. And she said, yes, I have. But you see, she had limited knowledge. She had limited knowledge. Didn't understand, didn't know. Facing troubles of life, circumstances of life, but doesn't understand how to get a hold of God or contact God. Those people out there need help also. It's bad to be in this world without knowing how to contact the Father, isn't it? Sure it is. Well, love. We're going to start talking about love. Love is the other ingredient. See, love is the other ingredient. In the soil, faith makes the ground hard, solid. Love makes that soil rich and beautiful. Ready to be God's greenhouse. Hallelujah. Do you see that? These two, 
we have to understand or our house will not be unchangeable. Let's all stand before the Lord. Thank you for listening to our legacy teachings. We pray today's message has a profound impact upon your life and your ministry. I want you to know that God loves you, has a great plan for your life. But if you've never made Jesus Christ Lord and Savior of your life, I'd like to invite you to do that right now. Just pray this simple prayer right after me. Just say, Heavenly Father, I come to you just as I am. And I believe with all my heart that Jesus died for my sins and was raised from the dead for me. I open the door of my heart. I call upon the name of the Lord. Lord Jesus, come into my heart now. I receive you and accept you as my personal Savior and Lord. If you prayed that prayer with me, you're a child of God right now, and I encourage you to get into a good Bible-based church where you can learn to grow in your Christian faith and experience. God bless.